2: With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: Today, on the Christmas edition of the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear stories about a reindeer who wanted more than a bite of a little boy's lollipop. And then there's a story of a lawsuit of the world's largest Christmas stocking. And a jokester who filled a couple's bathtub with flavored gelatin as a holiday greeting. Well, all those stories, plus the question of the day, today's retro sponsor, and more, they are coming up next on today's Useless Information Retrocast. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information Hi, everyone. Happy holidays. Uh, my wife, Mary Jane's back with us.
0: Hi, everyone.
1: And today we have for you a totally Christmas episode. It's not that I didn't look for stories on Hanukkah and other things, but really I didn't find anything that was good other than Christmas. I have a whole folder, and basically it's just filled with Christmas stories. And most of them are just short little tidbits, and we're going to talk about some of those today. Um, But before we get going, I just wanted to mention uh, that a couple weeks ago I was contacted by a guy uh, now, if you recall, about three years ago, I did a story called "Christmas Time in Santaheim," and it's about this guy Harry Heim, who uh, made a lot of money after uh, World War II producing Christmas ornaments. And he used his profits to buy a an old manufacturing facility outside of Washington D.C. in Maryland, in Savage, Maryland. And he wanted to create the world's largest Christmas village, and it was a financial disaster. But anyway, I got an email. From his sister's grandson. And he said his family had never ever heard this story before. And uh, basically his sister, I guess I've been doing some ancestry type stuff, came across my article and, uh, you know, just contacted me. Now, I know, Mary Jane, you love that story.
0: I Yeah, I did. It's um I know it's very sweet. Uh, you, especially the quotes, the quotes from the people. Mm-hmm. People spoke differently in that time period, and the kids were so wholesome. I mean, I remember one in particular who asked for presents for his mother so she could that could help her with her housework. Yeah, very sweet.
1: When I stumbled across, I don't know where I found that story. I never know where I find these things because right. I work on them over time. But uh, I knew when I put it together, I had something good, and that's one of my favorite Christmas stories. If you've never heard it, definitely go back and listen to it. It's called "Christmas Time in Santaheim," and I would have put it out in December of, I think, it was two thousand eighteen. Yep. So, anyway, so let's dive into uh, today's stories. Okay. So in our house, we have a traditional Christmas tree, albeit a fake one.
0: Yes, it's a bit of a Charlie Brown Christmas tree.
1: So yes, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Um, every every year when we take it out of the box, uh, we still have the original box. When we take it out, we have to spend like an I wouldn't say it's an hour, maybe about forty five minutes trying to fill in unbending all unbending the... it. Yeah. too.
0: it's all scrunched up. Yeah, yes. but
1: once you put the ornaments on, it looks pretty good. Of course, it's got the obligatory lights, ornaments, and some tinsel. And as you said, it's not one of the greatest looking trees. But luckily, we live way up on a hill, and as you drive up the road by our house. We have it uh, facing down towards that. And at night, it actually looks quite nice.
0: Yeah, you can see it through the window. and yeah. yeah,
1: it looks a lot better from the distance than it does close up.
0: Yes, it
2: does.
1: Yeah, so anyway, well, back in 1900, students in the University of Pennsylvania's biology department in Philadelphia, they opted to decorate their tree with some more unusual decorations. So forget the garland. Instead, they used long strings of vertebrae that came from various animals. So you, you can imagine this, right? Strings of basically spines.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure.
1: Yeah. Um, anyway, from the tree's branches, they hung all kinds of bugs and worms. And then various types of fish were placed near the worms. And that was suggestive of the natural desire of fish to eat the worms. Now, um, I assume, and you, you probably agree on this, these were yeah. preserved specimens. These weren't like they yes. just went out and got, uh, you know, they probably just had all these things preserved around the department. Right. Other ornaments included an assortment of preserved reptiles plus birds' nests that were full of eggs, and they placed preserved mother's birds. They positioned them so they appeared to be providing protection for their young. Stuffed monkeys were the sole representative of the mammals. Surprised they didn't have preserved humans.
0: (laughs) Oh, dear God.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding there. Anyway, and forget the gifts under the tree. The students placed big jars that were filled with preserved cats, pigs, and chickens around the base of the tree. Then they put piles of bones, skulls, and teeth, and that added a bit of a biting edge to the display, if you get my bad Mm, pun there. Yes, I
0: got that joke,
1: yes. (laughs) Anyway, and let's not forget the festive colors of green and blue molds and slime that accentuated the cheese, old boots, and rotten logs that were added to this preserved menagerie. Now, the article, which appeared in the Boston Globe, claimed that this was an old custom, and that the lively tree was a gift to the professors. Now, I could find nothing else in the newspapers about this, that it was a tradition, or if they even do it today, I'd be very right. surprised. So after I finished reading this, the one thing that stood out to me was the stuffed monkeys. Now, when I first started writing, I oh, stuffed monkeys, you know, a stuffed toy. But I'm thinking, this is a biology department. It was probably, you know, taxidermists involved there. that They were probably... Yeah,
0: probably. I mean, that would have been keeping with the whole decoration.
1: Yeah. Right? Uh, it kind of reminds me. Uh, this is going back. Uh, let's see. I, w- I went to University of Rochester for my master's degree, probably about thirty-five years ago, in the mid '80s. And uh, in the judgment, you got to imagine that geology is rocks. There's nothing alive. Right. And on the shelf in one of the labs was a mummified cat. Uh, and it was like a mascot. It was there. I don't know how. I, it had to be there for decades, I'm sure. And I have no idea where this cat came from. It just sat there on a shelf. And every once in a while, one of the other students would grab it. And it, it just kind of is a mascot. I Did no, it have a name? Uh, it must have. But I just don't remember it yeah. anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just, I remember the first time someone said, oh, there's our mummified cat up on the shelf. And whatever name it may have had. It just kind of struck me as bizarre, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay, so we're going to move on. You can do the next story.
0: Okay. On December 23rd, 1954, Dorothy Ferris of 42 Lakewood Avenue in Roosevelt, Long Island, took her two-year-old son, Richard, to nearby West Hempstead to see a Christmas display that featured eight live reindeer. Apparently, Rudolph got the day off.
1: Now, I'm doing my math there when I wrote this. I assume it was eight reindeer plus Rudolph. Is that correct?
0: Yes, I think so. Okay. (laughs) As the two stood behind the protective fence... Richie took the lollipop that he had been sucking on and poked it through the fence and shoved it under the nose of one of the reindeer. After sniffing the treat, the curious animal decided to give it a lick. It must have tasted great, since the next thing that happened was that the reindeer grabbed the entire lollipop, stick and all. And when I say all, I mean all. That included trying to remove the end of Richie's finger. Richie pulled his hand back as blood began to gush out of his finger. He screamed at the top of his lungs as jingle bells played over the public address system. Mom wrapped Richie's finger in a handkerchief, put him in the car, and then raced home. Dr. Samuel Postnock came and cauterized the wound and then, as required by law, contacted Dr. Earl Brown, who was the Nassau County Health Commissioner at the time. Brown was informed by zoologists in Manhattan that reindeer have a high incidence of rabies, so he ordered that the entire herd be quarantined until December 29th, five days after they had originally been scheduled to depart. Which left police with one big mystery to solve. Who was the guilty party in trying to bite off Richie Ferris's finger? Was it Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, or Blitzen? Or was it all a setup by one of the reindeer who never received the fame and glory of being able to pull Santa's sleigh?
1: I thought that was a really cute story.
0: Yeah, it was very cute.
1: Yeah. Now, uh, one thing I should point out is that uh, the story originally appeared in the New York Daily News. It was actually quite a lengthy story, complete with photo and all, not of the finger, but just, you know, of Richie, you know. Yeah. And... The headline at the top, the title said that it was his pinky. Then, when you read the story, it said it was his index, index finger. finger. Yeah. And then, if you read the articles that were syndicated in newspapers across the country, they just said finger. So they just
0: wanted to play it safe, right? Um, my guess is the index finger, just by holding a lollipop.
1: Yeah, I would think the same thing. Personally. Now, um, the other thing that the other thing that stood out in this article is that they said the f- his the blood was gushing. They made it out to be
0: yes. I think they're being dramatic there, right?
1: Right, because if, if the blood was really gushing out, they would have called for an ambulance. Mom wouldn't just wrap it in a handkerchief and then, yeah. you know, take him home, wait for a doctor to come by. They're adding some drama. Yeah. It is a cute story, though. Yeah.
0: And you said it was a big story, right? It was in many newspapers.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it was a big story in the New York Daily News, and then a section of a few paragraphs of that was carried in newspapers across yeah, the country. Yeah. Cute. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. So the Guinness Book of World Records claims that the world's largest Christmas stocking was created in Carrara, Italy on January 5th of 2011. It measured 168 feet 5 and 21 32nd inches, which is 51.35 meters long, and it was 70 feet 11 and 9 16th inches or 21.63 meters heel to toe. Now, it was created to raise money for the elderly, and since a stocking was required to be filled with presents, they simply filled it with balloons that contained sweets. But I think Guinness may have had it wrong. That's because I came across a series of articles that appeared in newspapers in December of 1965. Basically, WDGY, a Minneapolis, Minnesota radio station, they held a contest to fill the largest stocking that they received with prizes. Of course, one needs to be careful of what one wishes for. That's because three college students from St. Paul, that's Phil and Ron Mondo, and John Hinson, they submitted a stocking that measured 840 feet or 256 meters in length. The three invested $150, which is $1,250 today. They invested $150 into the project and spent an estimated 300 hours sewing the fabric together the first problem that the radio station had was finding a simple way to measure the stocking. Program director Scott Burton came up with the ingenious idea of having a helicopter lift the stocking up and place it beside the station's radio tower, which was of course of known height. Next, they needed a way to fill such a large stocking without of course breaking the bank. And like the supposed record holders in Italy, they opted to fill the stocking with balloons. But instead of placing candy inside of each balloon, the station placed a $1 bill inside of each. That would guarantee the winners at least $500 in total. That's $4,170 today. Yet that wasn't the end of the story. Ten students from McAllister College won the second prize, which was, quote, a cheap transistor radio of foreign make, a coupon for ten hamburgers, six promotional phonograph records, a carton of soft drinks, and five coupons for two quarts of Beep for Breakfast, which was a once-marketed vitamin-enriched breakfast drink. Yet the McAllister students insisted that they should have won the contest because their stocking had a much larger volume than the one that was declared the winner. They claimed that their stocking could hold 7,500 of the dollar-filled balloons. Their argument was that there's a big difference between the largest, which the contest specified, and the longest, of course, which the winning stocking was, even though the longest one was much smaller in volume. So what did they do? They hired a lawyer and sued the radio station. They requested the $7,500 that all those balloons were held in cash, plus an additional $5,000 for the embarrassment that they suffered in their loss. I was unable to find anything further on their lawsuit or how it was settled, but if I had to give a guess, I'd say that the students and the radio station came to some sort of financial agreement, and if anybody out there knows anything about it, let me know. And that leaves me with one big question. Was the stocking in Carrara, Italy really the largest, you know, as Guinness claims? Now, you just heard the evidence, and I'll leave that for you to decide. So Mary Jane, uh, did you hang stockings up when you were a kid?
0: Yes, we did. My mother sewed um, all our names on them. They were red felt stockings, and we put them on the fireplace.
1: And were they filled with coal?
0: No, they were filled with candy.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, And dentist was very happy about that one, I'm sure. Uh, Yeah, sure. It's great for (laughs) Um, business. (laughs) Yeah. um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, but there was this little store called The Trading Post in Rock Hill, New York. It's still in business today. Wow. And Mm -hmm. my parents would go shopping there, and uh you know to get food and groceries you know groceries and they also had a hardware store attached to it yeah. but when you'd go to the checkout over all the carts all the shopping carts was this every year they had this giant giant stocking filled with all kinds of toys and gifts and they had a contest uh, to see you know who whoever won the contest would get this giant stocking and i wanted to win every single year what
0: was the contest exactly i
1: don't know i think you just put your name and address and oh, probably phone okay. number like and a raffle, a raffle yeah sure. mm-hmm. and uh, of course uh never won never the thing. Won. <laughs> I still, I still want all those gifts in that stocking.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. So what'd you think about the story?
0: I was a little surprised at how seriously college students took this contest. You know, I mean, especially you go so far as hiring a lawyer uh, yeah. to, to to figure out who really won. And yeah.
1: yeah. And, and what amazed me, this is right at Christmas time. Uh, you know, they're doing this
0: Around finals. Around finals. And they're they're spending 300
1: hours making this giant stocking.
0: Sewing a stocking.
1: Now, uh, there is a fuzzy picture. It's kind of one of those microfilm pictures uh, in the newspaper archives of it. Mm. And they may call it a stocking, but really it's just a... You know, a ba-
0: long, long piece of material sewn right, together, <laughs> basically. And I think yeah. they just
1: sewed up the edges. And there's their stocking. Maybe, maybe they must have put a little foot at, uh, you know, foot at the end. Yeah. But yeah, um, it it didn't look like what you think your traditional Christmas stocking would look like.
0: So maybe the other team, the McAllister team, maybe they had a good argument there.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it did yeah. say largest, which you know is can uh, be interpreted longest, as right. they were saying <laughs> exactly,
0: and strangest. <laughs>
1: So why don't we take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, but when we return, uh, we'll hear um, some more Christmas stories.
0: Okay. Sounds good.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say.
3: Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the
1: Box of Oddities.
2: The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Welcome,
1: Welcome back. back. So Mary Jane, here's a question for you. All you right. ready? Sure in what year was the first Christmas film made?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I know that's almost impossible to get an exact date, so just try and get the uh, right, right and decade. And this
0: includes even silent film, possibly? Oh, it's definitely
1: silent film. Okay, And it's very short. It's under two minutes, but it involves okay. Santa Claus and the chimney and all that kind oh, of stuff, okay. and stockings.
0: All
1: right. So uh, you just got to get the correct, decade okay
0: oh i can win with the correct decade correct decade that's quite generous of you yes so (laughs)
1: uh anyway i'll let you think about that for a bit and we'll discuss the answer at the end of the podcast okay so for today's retro sponsor i've chosen Dole pineapples or Dole pineapple juice you ready for that yes sure okay so let's take a listen
4: friends i know two people who are going to be awfully busy the next few days that's my wife and my grocer it's the same in your neighborhood too i'll bet Women rushing around buying all sorts of good things to eat and grocers rushing around filling extra big orders. Those busy grocers are laying in extra big supplies of dole pineapple juice, too. They know from experience that folks enjoy lots of that golden chair from Hawaii at Christmas time. Dole pineapple juice will taste mighty fine first thing Christmas morning, just before the family gathers around the tree to see what old Sandy left. Later on in the day, too, when the family can hardly wait for Christmas dinner, keep them happy with dull pineapple juice. Everybody likes its keen flavor, and when the dinner comes on, they'll all be ready for it. Maybe you're planning a sort of buffet supper or informal gathering for Christmas Eve or Christmas night. And if you are, why not include pineapple juice when you plan your menu? It's the pleasantest beverage I can think of and makes everything else taste better. I'm sure you'll be glad you laid in a big supply of of that delicious Dole Pineapple Juice for the holidays.
1: That commercial for Dole Pineapple Juice is from the December 20th, 1939 Christmas episode of The Al Pierce Show. Now, the show was a comedy, and one of the best parts of the show was when Al played the part of a door-to-door salesman named Elmer Blurt. Now, Elmer was incredibly shy, and after he knocked on every door, he would mumble, I hope there's nobody home, I hope, I hope, I hope. Of course, someone almost always answered the door, and that's where the real comedy would begin. As for Dole Pineapple, and I have to say I love fresh pineapple, the company was founded as the Hawaiian Pineapple Company in 1901 by James Dole. He was born on September 27, 1877 in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, and he went on to receive a bachelor's degree in agriculture from the Bussey Institute at Harvard. At the age of 22, he packed up everything and moved to Hawaii. Now, after I mentioned that its cousin once removed Sanford B. Dole was the president of the Republic of Hawaii at the time, that move makes a lot more sense. Upon arrival, James Dole purchased a 64-acre farm on the island of Oahu, and he experimented with various crops, ultimately choosing to focus on pineapples. Without going into great detail as to how Dole built up his empire, I mean that could fill an entire book. I'll briefly tell you that his use of technology allowed his company to process pineapples faster than his competitors. And his decision to set up a cannery in Hawaii that allowed for pineapples to be shipped all the way to the East Coast markets of the United States. Plus, he ran a successful nationwide consumer ad campaign. And that all set the foundation for his company to grow and eventually dominate the pineapple industry. His company was eventually acquired by Castle & Cook, which was one of the big five sugarcane producers in Hawaii. And then through various acquisitions and business moves, Dole grew into the mega fruit and veggie powerhouse that it is today. Now, I do have two other commercials from the same show that I'll play uh, later on in the podcast. Um, but I have to say, I really have a dislike for canned pineapple of any form. There's just I don't know what it is. I mean, supposedly it's just pineapple plus the juice and whatever, but the taste is so different.
0: It's yeah, it's not as fresh. It, it's definitely not as good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree.
1: we have pineapple typically, you know, at least one a week. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's pretty easy to uh, you know buy a pineapple and just yeah, cut today it. Today,
0: it's very common. You find them in all the supermarkets. Yeah.
1: yeah. Now, uh, you wanted to quickly mention about uh, growing a pineapple.
0: Well, you gave me a pineapple plant, being all excited that we would one day have pineapples. But when you gave it to me, I'm like, we live in New York State, Steve, <laughs> and it's it's. It's grown a little bit, but there's no way it's, I don't know if it's ever going to produce a pineapple.
1: Yeah. I mean, I should mention it's a miniature pineapple and it was designed to grow indoors. Right. Um, But we don't get a lot of light indoors here, particularly in the wintertime. Yeah, not in the winter. And uh, even a typical pineapple, I think, takes 18 to 24 months to reach, you know, to get just one fruit oh, off of it. An yeah. um, a, a interesting little side note is that when you look at a pineapple, it looks like one solid flower produced that, but each one of those, uh, I don't know what you would call them, those little shapes on there is a separate flower, and as it grows, they fuse into one giant fruit, which is what we purchase.
0: Okay. Huh. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh.
1: So let's move on. Okay. So now it's time for a segment I call Footnotes History. These are short little stories that really there's no further research to do. So we're just going to read them word for word as they appeared in the newspapers years ago. This one's titled Santa Claus Has Trouble Getting Down This Chimney. This is from December 29, 1937, San Antonio, Texas. And this is an Associated Press story. It's happened. The accent children always fear that Santa Claus may get stuck in a chimney. It happened before their very eyes here last night. Santa started down a specially built chimney at a Salvation Army home party and became wedged in the walls. He could budge neither up nor down. Frantic attendants went to his aid and finally pulled him down. 100 childish faces lined with dismay broke into smiles. A very nonchalant Santa went about the business of distributing his gifts. I should say I come across these kind of stories all the time about Santa getting stuck in chimneys. I have a whole bunch of them. Really? I don't know if it's an annual thing, but it ha- it's, you know, if you read enough old newspapers, that story seems to repeat itself with time.
0: That's hilarious.
1: Yeah. Of course Santa could never get down our chimney. He's got to find a different way into the house. Although right. he he's got his magical power, so maybe he'll figure out a way.
0: Mm. This is from December 2nd, 1948, and it's entitled Early greeting might be said in bad taste, from Pueblo, Colorado. Mr. and Mrs. Jack Halstead never eat gelatin for dessert. This worried them considerably yesterday when they returned home from a Denver trip to find that some prankster had mixed approximately 30 gallons of cherry-flavored gelatin in the bathtub. The glassy red stuff was inscribed in whipped cream with the premature greeting, Merry Christmas.
1: (laughs) I thought that was a really cute little story. Yeah. It left me with a whole bunch of questions. I mean, first of all, it takes a while for gelatin to, to solidify.
0: Exactly. I was so, wondering, too, I mean, do you have to refrigerate it? Maybe.
1: Well, not no. not, not <laughs> certainly not in your bathtub. <laughs> no, you can't. So, so the question is, they must have been gone for quite a while for that to happen. The other thing that popped in my head is, how did they know it was cherry? I mean, would you eat out of your bathtub to to find out what flavor it is?
0: No, I I don't know, and they don't like it. So, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. they must have. I don't know. Yeah, and, someone uh, must have.
1: <laughs> and then also, how did they know it was thirty gallons? I mean, first of all, it's a pretty. Sp- I mean, a tub holds eighty gallons. And I should say, thir- for those of you overseas, thirty gallons is about one hundred and twenty liters. Yeah, that's not enough to immerse your body. And so, so how did they, you know.
0: I have no idea. How,
1: yeah, but, they, but it is a cute story. I mean, who, there was no follow-up. I couldn't find anything after about this. It'd be right. curious if it was, you know, who the prankster, they probably found out eventually who the prankster was, you know. Yeah,
0: sure.
1: Because probably someone had a key friend, to the place. Yeah. yeah a friend, neighbor. Uh, Maybe an adult child or something like that, you um, know. Yeah.
0: And
1: before we go on with more stories, uh, I said I'd play another one of those dull pineapple commercials. All right. So let's take a listen.
3: Okay. You know, Al, this year, a holiday grocery list are going to include something they've never had before. Well, what's that, Gary? Those new Dole Pineapple Gems.
4: Say, by golly, now that you mention it, that is right. This is their first year. Well, we've sure got gems
3: on our grocery list at home. And so have lots of people all over the country. Every day, more people are discovering Dole Pineapple Gems. And everyone who tastes this new and unusual cut of pineapple is enthusiastic about it. You know, gems spelled G-E-M-S are different. The ripe fruit is cut across the grain into tender, juicy, spoon-sized cubes. Cutting the fruit across the grain releases more of that marvelous pineapple goodness. Why not let the whole family enjoy gems tomorrow? Or they're great treat by themselves and just as they come from the can. And gems are greatest in salads and fruit cups and desserts. They're easy to serve because they're spoon-sized and cube-shaped. Remember the name... Old pineapple gems. G
1: E well, M S. A little bit of distortion there in the uh, audio uh, right near the end. Towards the end, yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, these come off old transcription discs, uh, these giant kind of records from. Uh, it's actually kind of amazing that so many are, uh, are still, still around. around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, people started collecting them because they generally just dispose of them once the show was over. Yeah. Have you ever heard of pineapple gems? Mm-hmm.
0: Never. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. They're always
1: diced or cubed uh, pineapple to me. Again, not one of my favorites. I still prefer a fresh pineapple. Anyway, let's get back to the stories. Okay. This story is from December 26, 1949 and is entitled, Oddest Gift, Ontario Boy Given Snake by Museum, Santa Barbara, California. Probably one of the oddest Christmas presents today went to the 10-year-old son of Dr. and Mrs. A. Williams of Ontario. It was a king snake, the gift of the Museum of Natural History here. The family drove here from Ontario yesterday to buy the snake, but was informed that the museum had no such pets for sale. However, on learning how unhappy the boy would be, and that his parents had driven 125 miles, that's 200 kilometers, to find such a present, Director Arthur Cogswell of the museum made them a gift of the snake he shoved it into a sugar bag and the family drove off anticipating a happy Christmas. So did you ever want a snake for Christmas? Uh,
0: no, never. Yeah, either. <laughs> Absolutely never. <laughs>
1: yeah. um, as you know, my parents owned a pet shop for 25 yeah, years and they right. did sell snakes. And mm-hmm. um, there were people, now they always kept them under lock and key. They were in a glass. They were in tanks with uh, screen covers on them. And then the cabinet always had a lock and key on it you know, the glass doors okay. were locked I, up.
0: I think I know where this is going, but well, go right ahead. <laughs> yeah,
1: and there were, there were still people, and they were always in the back of the store on purpose because people wouldn't walk into the, store, into the store knowing there were snakes there. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, they not afraid. It was a pretty big store, but, okay. you know, even knowing they were in the lock and key, some people couldn't overcome the fear.
0: Had a phobia almost. But anyway,
1: uh, you know, occasionally one would get loose. Yeah. And I remember, uh, you know, one year... Uh, My mom had mentioned to me that one had gotten loose a couple of months earlier, but they couldn't find it. And there's really Uh not a lot of places to hide in the store. You know, in retail stores, the ceilings are very high, much large, you know, much higher than you'd find Uh in a typical home. And in their storage room, the shelves went all the way to the ceiling. And they asked me to get a box off the shelf. And I think it was like ant bait or something like that it, it was a poison it, it wasn't sure. anything that was g- good for anything Right. and you know how they always how on the top step of every ladder says do not step here mm, because obviously because you you could fall over lose your balance. well of course guess where i'm standing oh my goodness and also and i pull yeah. this little white box it was a tiny little white box i pull it off the shelf and i look in and there's a snake and i almost went over wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i was look i mean i i grabbed onto the shelving it was it was the wire type shelving so i just grabbed on it didn't go anywhere but I was like, holy cow, you know, not only has it gone months without eating, which snakes can easily right. do, and without yeah. water, mm-hmm. but there it is coiled up in a in a box of basically, you know, poison. I mean, everything was wrapped, but uh, sure. the fact that it survived was pretty amazing. Yeah,
0: I did know that, that they can live for a very long time without right. food or
1: anything. Yeah. So it's just one of those very memorable stories mm-hmm. uh, of, yeah. of of uh, having a pet shop in the family.
0: Yeah. So this is from... December 17, 1953, and it's entitled, Absent-Minded Santa Claus, from Charlotte, North Carolina. Children at the Union Hills Orphanage were a little shocked at Santa Claus's appearance when he parachuted onto the orphanage grounds as part of the Ninth Air Force's Operation Christmas. First of all, Santa radio commentator Frank Edwards forgot his beard, Then, as Edwards was distributing toys, he noticed the rather startling expression on the faces of the children. I looked down, Edwards said, and discovered to my dismay that my pants were around my knees. Okay.
1: (laughs) So what do you think?
0: Um, I think he wasn't taking his job very seriously.
1: Yeah, although, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, it's Uh, not...
0: Forgetting your beard? Come on. That's that's (laughs) a real... That's his signature
1: (laughs) hair. Of course, the the real Santa would never forget his beard because because it's a permanent part. He's just
0: busy, so sometimes people have to be stand in Santas for him.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: (laughs) But this guy didn't do the greatest job.
1: No, um, (laughs) but I'm sure the kids loved their gifts when they got them.
0: This is true. This is true. And and nobody's perfect.
1: That's right, (laughs) except me. No, just kidding. (laughs) Uh, So we'll do the last one. Okay. This story is dated December 26 of 1958, and its headline is All 18 of them. Dot, 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 Christmases have Merry Christmas. New Orleans, Louisiana. This is a United Press International story. It was a Merry Christmas for the Christmases, all 18 of them, in spite of all those wise cracking telephone calls. There were Josie, Eugene, Margaret, Lori, Rose, Sam, Earl, Lewis, Winfield, and Joseph, but no Mary or even Mary. Josie says she was the only Christmas in town that she knew of until about 15 years ago. Then members of the Christmas family began migrating downriver from Natchez, Mississippi, and now they all get together for Christmas. Among them are housewives, soldiers, construction workers, meatpackers, and a physiotherapist. As usual on Christmas Eve, the telephone at Josie's house jingled constantly while the Christmases were decorating their tree. The callers were anonymous but the nature of the calls was familiar. Quote, "If your Christmas wears Santa Claus one caller asked. Merry Christmas, ho ho ho," said another. "And another, Christmas, I thought you didn't arrive until the 25th. Are you here already?" The maker of that last call was informed cheerfully that the Christmases are around 365 days a year or 366 in the leap years. So I did check and uh it turns out, this is the beauty of the internet, there okay. are 7,385 people with the last name of Christmas in the United and States. That's a lot. And worldwide, there's only 14,370, which basically means half of them live within they the United States. live
0: in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I've never met anyone with the last name of Christmas, honestly. I
0: have not either, no.
1: Yeah. Um, of course, we live nowhere near uh, Mississippi. You were going to tell a little bit yeah, of a story. Yeah,
0: I just thought it was cute that, People back then, you know, did prank phone calls because people don't do that anymore because most people don't have landlines. And when I was a kid, I remember staying over at a girlfriend's house and calling up um, just random phone numbers and asking people what, how many Campbell soups they had in their cupboard. And one time this one woman went and spoke to us for quite a few minutes about it. And we hung up and laughed our heads off saying, she had, she didn't have a clue. And of course, we're like in fourth or fifth grade. So with our squeaky voices, she knew all along that it was just a prank phone call that we were making, you know, when... People don't do that anymore. I think it's, um, you know, At least that we know of. Lost art.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now, now they send prank texts. I don't know. I really don't Maybe. know what uh, yeah. young kids do today. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can't say I've ever done that in my life. Yeah. I, I, it never even occurred to me. I, of course, as you know, I don't like picking up the phone, so it probably would never happen. Well,
0: there you go. I won't
1: even call for a pizza, as you know. So Mary Jane, earlier in the podcast, I asked you when the first Christmas film right. was made. Mm-hmm. And I told you at least get to the right decade.
0: Decade. Yeah.
1: So what were you thinking?
0: Well, we talked about, you said something, kind of like a hint that it's as far back as silent movies. Oh, it's definitely a silent movie. Okay, so I'm going to go pretty far back.
1: And how pretty far back is that?
0: I'm going to say, I feel, I feel like this is, let's make a deal. 1905?
1: You're close okay you're off by just a little bit it was made in september of 1898
0: yeah you know i was even thinking 1900 but yeah because yeah. um, i know you can gonna be sh- are old yeah
1: yeah i know you're gonna be shocked by this but it was titled santa claus and it was mm-hmm. a film made by a guy named george albert smith who was an established portrait photographer at the time the entire film ran you ready for this One minute and sixteen seconds. Right. Um, and it starred his wife Laura Bailey and their two children, who were Dorothy and Harold.
0: Can can that? Can you see it online? Yeah, um, I'd love to see that.
1: Yeah, actually, what I'll do, um, of course, I'll show it to you by yourself. Mm -hmm. But I I will put it up on my (laughs) website. Thank you, Steve. Very nice. No, no, no. You can never look at it, but uh, (laughs) I I will put it up on my website. So if you go to uselessinformation.org, I will post that. Uh, if it's not there and you go to check, some, someone sent me an email, but I will uh, try and remember to post it there.
0: That'd be cute.
1: Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, it's it's actually a cute, it, I think it's very well made for its time. Basically, there's a maid who puts two children asleep. Then she goes and she turns out the light and then Santa suddenly appears and fills their stockings. Um. And in an instant, he vanishes, which is presumed to go, you know, he went up the chimney. Right. And it was it was quite advanced and ingenious for its time. It's the first known use of parallel action. You know, the kids are in bed while Santa's up on the snowy roof of the house. So you have two kind of scenes going on at the same time. Oh. And, of mm-hmm. course, it involved double exposure. So, as I said, I'll put this up on my website for everybody to take a look at. It, yeah. is, it is worth looking at. I actually enjoyed watching it. Sure. Uh, by the way, he did make another one uh, on, uh, I, I don't remember the exact title, but basically the death of Mary Jane. What? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's not as good, but uh, involves his wife also. I don't remember the exact title. No, 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 I'm not. (laughs) Oh my! But but basically, she does something and she blows herself up, and then people come and around her grave, and then her ghost comes out of the grave. So wow! um, But but they're all very short. I mean, making films back then was a very costly, very time consuming, uh, and very complicated. So okay. So uh, we should bring this podcast to a close. And I'll just remind everyone that my latest book, The Flipside History, is currently available, as are my two previous books. Those are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. And all three books are collections of long-forgotten true stories, just like the ones you always hear on this podcast. If you'd like to contact me about anything, whether it be regarding this episode, the podcast itself, my books, or whatever, my email is steve at uselessinformation.org. It's steve at uselessinformation.org. You can also contact me through my website, which is uselessinformation.org, or you can use Messenger on Facebook. Be sure to subscribe to the Useless Information podcast through your favorite podcast platform so you'll have immediate access to new episodes when they're released. My Twitter feed is at UselessInfoCast, and be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search there, and the Useless Information podcast should pop up. Anyway, I plan on being back in a couple of weeks with a new story. Uh, I should mention I'm having surgery on December 17th on my mouth. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk. Could,
0: could be a problem.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> for a I did, while. Yeah, uh, I'm actually getting a series of four surgeries. They're oh. all they're all uh, mm-hmm. related to receding gums. Uh, I had a major one done about what ten days ago now. Yes. This true. is actually the first day I can kind of move my lower lip and uh, and,
0: and speak and speak. <laughs> yeah, you had to I be mean, quite it, about I, I could
1: talk, but it hurt a lot. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of receded at this point um and therefore i'm going under the knife once more anyway um so maybe i'll be back uh, before the first of the year and i'm not sh- you know maybe not if i'm a little late uh, that's unfortunate but that's what's going to happen anyway thanks everyone for listening and i wish everyone a happy holidays yeah
0: happy holidays
1: and take care everyone bye
0: bye
4: <laughs> well, here we are at the end of our Christmas program. And as Elmer Burt would say, I sure hope you all have a very Merry Christmas. I hope, I hope, I hope. And I hope when you wake up Christmas morning, besides all the other stuff, maybe you'll find your, in your stocking a nice big can of that delicious, Dole pineapple juice from Hawaii.
1: Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge.
2: Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus, tons of extra themed episodes.